literature and Islamophobia. So, well, first let me acknowledge the support um, for a panel here uh, of the Dutch Foundation of Literature, the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method, Forum for European Philosophy, and the Migration Studies Unit. I think that's somewhere up there. So there we go. Um, now, the program actually has been changing a little bit. Um, we have two people on our panel, um, and uh, there should be a third person. Now, in the beginning, the title was Literature and Islamophobia, Islam Islamophobia, Three Dutch Muslim Authors Speak Out. Um, but then <coughs> Naima, Naima Elbezaz dropped out. You, you saw her in your program. Um, and we have a, a third person on the program who is actually a UK Muslim <coughs> author, and that is um, Shalina Zara Jan Muhammad. Now, Shalina has a, a four week old baby, and um, they are on their way right now. So, uh, baby Hannah is actually slowing things down a little bit. But we decided that we, we should just get started. I think they'll be here um, in about 10 minutes or so. And uh, so let me, let me start with a, with a short introduction of um, our two Dutch Muslim authors, okay? So Naima Tahir, here on my left, is uh, born in Slough, about 25, 25 miles west from here. She's currently living in The Hague, is of Pakistani descent. Um, she practiced as a human rights lawyer for the United Nations and the Council of Europe. She's a guest lecturer at Leiden University. And she's the author of many successful uh, books. Um, I've got three of them here. Maybe this one is sort of the most revealing one. Naima um, Tahir, A Muslima Unveils. Right? So, and then we have with us Shanae Özdemir. She was born in Turkey, lives in Rotterdam at the moment. Um, she's a guest lecturer, or was a guest lecturer, in the University of Texas. She's also the founder of um, a magazine that is being published in the Netherlands. So, nice glossy magazine here. And uh, this is uh, a Dutch magazine for Mediterranean um, women. Um, and uh, she's an active blogger, an active tweeter, um, and the author, once again, of an equally revealing title, and that's Hard, hard to translate, but I think we get the picture is the Waxing Club. Three women here. Um, so, <laughs> no Shalina yet? <laughs> exactly, thanks very much. So, um, anyway, let's, let, let me ask both of you actually to fill in these introductions a little bit, a little bit more. Um, so, we have a panel really, you know, literature, Islamophobia. So, so I think it, it would be nicer to think of yourself, well, you know, we're Muslim authors, and then if you think about, about multiculturalism, it shouldn't be about assimilation, it should be about integration. And so then the question, of course, would be, you know, what is it that you as Muslim authors, you know, contribute in this multicultural debate, um, in this intercultural dialogue, and so on? How, how do you see yourself in your writing, and, you know, what you contribute through your writing as, Mus as Muslim authors? So maybe start with Naima. Yeah, um, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. It's my second time uh, at the LSC. Am I audible? Okay. Am I visible? <laughs> <laughs> Which is also important. Um, well, 
let me give you a little bit, bit of my um, private history and professional history. I was born in Slough. Um, I lived in Slough for 10 years. Um, my parents then moved to the Netherlands when I was about 10 years old. When I was 14, we all moved to Pakistan because my parents believed that that is where we belonged, that you know, ultimately Muslims should live in the best Muslim country on earth, which is Pakistan. <laughs> um, and when I was 16, so after two years, we came back to the Netherlands because this remigration plan just didn't work out for economical reasons, but also for, I think, the ambitions of my father's six children who <coughs> really wanted to pursue uh, great studies and couldn't find themselves doing that in Pakistan. So I had actually migrated back and forth uh, four times by the age of 15, and I had lived in three different countries, but two of them non-Muslim and one of them Muslim. I don't actually like the term non-Muslim, but it's just for the sake of the argument. Then I started to you know, um, feel lost in, in Holland. I didn't know who I was. You know, am I Dutch? Am I British? Am I Pakistani? I was quite confused. And I did quite well at school, so I went to an all-white school um, doing my A-levels, and I felt totally abandoned. So I felt I needed to belong somewhere, and I started becoming very religious. I was very fundamentalistic, but that word wasn't fashionable in the 1980s. Uh, but I was very, very, in, in, in Urdu they would call it dini, so someone who would live for religion. And I also felt that I felt home in religion and that my the place I wanted to be was the hereafter. That was the place I belonged, so not in, in this temporary world. Um, but after, after a while, after five, six, seven years, I started opening up my mind because I, started, I went to law school and I had this impression that only Muslims could be happy people and only Muslims could be successful people and only virtuous Muslims would be rewarded on, uh, in, uh, on earth but also in the hereafter. And in, my, in front of me, you had all these students of different colors, of different backgrounds, different religions, or sometimes no religion at all, and they were happier than I was. And sometimes they even got better grades. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that was a good confusion because I connected then to uh, this goodness, which is not only apparent in Muslims, but it's also apparent in people who are not of my faith. And since that time, I've been very, very interested in the parallels and in, in you know, the good human being in general and in the interfaith thing. And I, I'm, I'm just curious about you know, what faith does to people, how it makes someone a better person, how it can sometimes make someone a, a, a not so good person. Um, at the age of 27, I experienced something very, very uh, awful. I, I, I was practicing as a lawyer for one year, and my parents arranged a marriage for, for me, and they forcibly engaged me off to someone I didn't know, I'd, I'd never met. And then I came into this struggle, what shall I do? Um, I ultimately said no, but it took me a year to say no. And when I said no, actually I should say yes to welcome our next guest. Shall I? Oh, she's no. not the. <laughs> she's not I was going to give you the seat on the, on the <laughs> in the pantheon. Um, so I, I said no, but that also opened my mind to um, the infringement of, of my own human rights, but also the 
weaker position sometimes Muslim women find themselves in, especially in the West, where the conflict between tradition and modernity is uh, at its largest. So as a human rights lawyer, I felt I needed to write about this conflict, tradition and modernity, and focus on, um, on women's rights. And then after a while, 9-11 happened, and my pen just kept going on and just kept, I just couldn't stop, uh, stop writing. I will go into you know, uh, the writing later, but just to answer your question now, um, I don't call myself a Muslim author. I think that's, uh, that's a term which, it doesn't suit me because what is a Muslim author? Do they write in Muslim? Um, is there, are there books only for, uh, for Muslims? Um, and I get that question often, you know, who do you write for? Is, is, are the aims of your books to emancipate Muslim women? The, the, I only write because I need to write. I need to share uh, my story. I need to share what I felt like living in three different countries as a Muslim in different phases of my life and how I experienced the conflict between tradition and modernity actually on a daily basis. And who do I write for? I write for readers. And that can be anyone, and that's preferably everyone. Um, and I think that's, you know, my topic is, of course, multiculturalism. It's uh, Muslim women's human rights. I've, you know, I'm specializing in marital law uh, of Muslim uh, women in the arranged marriage, forced marriage uh, topic. Uh, that's a particular interest of mine. Uh, but I write for all of you. It's, you know, your problem is you don't read Dutch. <laughs> so um, I'll have to translate uh, my books or switch to English uh, one day. Okay. Thank you very much. So, Sharon? Good evening, everybody. <coughs> um, well, it's, uh, of course, it's hard to, to say because I don't know you that well, but um, her story as a Muslima, um, I don't recognize myself in her at all because born as a Turkish girl, in Turkey um, and raised by um, um, a lecturer who was very secular and a Kemalist. Um, religion was not the topic in our house. It was more, you know, Turkish cultural tradition, which was the topic. And uh, my father didn't allow us to, ha to express ourselves in the religion um, religiously outside at all. So for me it's very different uh, story but of course we had other you know we had similar issues like you know the issues um, women always face like virginity and I think okay okay it's also in Islam but it's also a cultural thing you know a w a girl is not allowed to go to the disco and, you know, have boyfriends, or she sh she should be virgin before, you know, she gets married. So, but it was not under the umbrella of Islam. Mm -hmm. It was more, what does the community say? Yeah. Yeah. But I was not allowed to wear a headscarf. Um, we, you know, we we read the Quran in Turkish because our father wanted us to know about the Quran, but we couldn't express it outside. Um, my problem living in the Netherlands is that 
until I think 2000, you know, until 9-11, we were not portrayed as Islamic at all. We were all, you know, migrants. We were guest workers, migrants, and then all, we, we, we became Muslims. But I, you know, as a Muslim girl living in, you know, in, in the Netherlands, coming from a Turkish family, I don't know anything more about Islam than many Western Dutch, you know, English people do. Do you understand what I'm saying? So all of a sudden, I think you two, me too, we were seen as experts in Islam, which is very, very dangerous, I think. You shouldn't be focusing yourself as an expert on Islam because Islam is a very difficult religion, as every religion is. But you can always, you know, knock my door and ask me about, you know, what I feel as a Turkish woman, you know, coming from a country where 98% of the people are Muslim, but secular. So, and then I can give you my point of view. Well, there was this interesting line actually in the, the, the Waxing Club. Um, and let me just read it. Um, it says, the, in the intimacy of the old women's community is gone, right? You sort of been the native community, you know, where you came from. Um, but the ease with which Dutch girls talk about sex, that is going too far. And hence, it's a blessing that the three of them have each other. And sometimes when I read your, your blog and your tweets and so on, I mean, that's the impression that I get that you're really writing for this sort of niche group of people who search for, you know, a place where they can share intimacy in a, yes. in a, in a comfortable way. Yes. Yeah? Well, when I started the magazine, I purposely did not want it to call it an Islamic magazine. Mm -hmm. But my audience were Mediterranean women with an Islamic background. I say, you know, exclusively with an Islamic background. It doesn't necessarily say that you are Islamic, but you can come from a country where, you know, the Islam is the biggest religion and you know how they live, but you don't have to live it yourself, uh, you know, that intensely um, as they do. So um, I refuse to call my uh, magazine an Islamic magazine. Uh, but it was, of course, made for Mediterranean women from Turkey, Morocco, but also, you know, I think a lot of Italian women did recognize themselves because I believe we have, around the Mediterranean Sea, a similar culture, and I call it the olive oil culture. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I really believe that because it's the family structure, where we come from. I can understand an Italian girl much easier than I do a Dutch girl or uh, a Spanish girl. Like the macho culture we live in, you know, this patri patriarchal culture. So um, that's why I call it Mediterranean magazine. But because of the uh, volume of Turkish and Moroccan women in Holland, of course, uh, we all also um, uh, wrote about Islamic issues. And then also, it goes with my book. It's a Mediterranean chiclet. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I'm not a professor on Islam studies. I just, you know, I'm just a simple Turkish girl who wants to write how Mediterranean women, Turkish, Moroccan, I don't care, uh, feel about living in the West. And if you go to the difference between the easiness that Western, that Dutch women talk about sex, 
we also talk about sex, but we talk about it when we're um, when it's inside. So in in our own culture, we talk a lot about sex. Mm -hmm. I am really amazed that you know how the openness, how Turkish women talk about it. It's it doesn't matter whether they're old, or whether they're young, but it's they're really they're really open to it. As long as it's inside, it's it's not a problem. Um, but you know the Dutch girls are very um, uh, uh, comfortable in you know talking to their father. To, the, to their mother about you know having a boyfriend, we we couldn't do that at all in our in our family. <laughs> but it doesn't say that my mother and her sister didn't talk about sex. So that that's the culture you're living in. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I like I like the subtitle here. It says it's a book that's full of beauty, men, and other questions of life. Yes. Right? <laughs> okay. Um, well, no, Shalina, yet. I think we should um, you move on to, to our next question. Um, you know, this is definitely going to come up from the audience too. But um, I think I think let's let's just raise it here. So, so when we were looking around for people to to join our panel, um, one response that I that I received from a, a Dutch author, a Dutch Muslim author, was the following. She said, I'm not a proponent of multiculturalism. It's a nihilist theory that makes our moral consciousness wither. Islamophobia is an expression of the organization of the Islamic conference to demonize and to make impossible any criticism of the Islam, while I, as an author, am one of the strongest critics of Islam. And so the response was, I'm not participating in this panel. Right, and and I think you know the UK and the Netherlands have sort of seen a, a parallel history in a way. I mean, there's been the Rush the affair on one side. There's been uh, the Pierre Van Gogh and the SLE story after um, the submission came out, and, and of course the murder of Pierre Van Gogh. Um, the Danish cartoons issue came up in both countries. Um, now we have the jewel um, of Medina. Um, this is uh, Susan uh, Sherry Jones's book. Um, is this going to be published in the UK? Is it going to come out in the Netherlands? I mean, it's all about you know critique of, of Islam and how much is, is permitted. What sort of self criticism is there? Um, and then I think when we compare both countries, um, the Jewel of Medina is not coming out in the UK. The Danish cartoons were not published in the UK, and I think we will see the Jewel of Medina published mm -hmm. in the Netherlands. And uh, we did see the, Jew, the Danish cartoons in the Netherlands. Mm. So um, maybe, Naima, we'll start with you. You were on a panel on self-censorship. Yeah. Um, so what's I your view on these yeah. issues? Well, there are two subjects here now. There's one is the Islamophobia. So multiculturalism um, does not allow for um, criticism on Muslims or on Islam. And OK, shall, shall we wait? Sorry. Hi, everyone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No worries at all. You okay. have a baby, that's the perfect excuse. <laughs> yeah, blame, blame the baby for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Newborn, say. So, before we call baby Hannah, um, and here is uh, Shalina Jean Mohammed. Um, so, uh, let, let me do an introduction here first. Um, so, you, you grew up in North London, mm -hmm. and um, a, you're, you, the Times says that you're one of the 100 most influential um, Muslim women. Okay. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, you're also known as Spirit21. This is her, her name as a, as a blogger. 
educate, you know, offers a perspective on, on various issues, sort of Muslim perspective on political, cultural, and religious issues. Um, and uh, then there is the, the book Love, Love in a Headscarf, and I think once again, very self-revealing self title. So the, the first question actually that we got started with was, you know, this is a, a pretty meager introduction in a way, um, but uh, I, I'd like you to kind of fill it out a little bit. So, you know, there's this issue of multiculturalism, we don't want assimilation, we want integration, and integration should be a two-way street, right? Um, so what is it that you see as a Muslim woman that you, you know, contribute really to this intercultural dialogue? One of the things that I wanted to explore in my blog and in the book and in all subsequent writings is really how having these multiple heritages can actually free you to see things in different ways. Um, and of course all cultures have their really positive and strong points, but also they have their areas which perhaps, when, particularly when you're growing up, you can feel frustrated by or you can see that need improvement. And actually what I found really beneficial of growing up as somebody who was British, um, I went to a very typical public school, um, you know, went to you know, very well respected universities and so on, um, but also from an Asian background growing up in the 80s when you know, it was a little bit embarrassing, a little bit shameful to be from a different culture, but also in a family where religion was really important was the fact that I could see things in different ways. And that, as a young person, is very confusing, it's very tense, it can be very frustrating. But as I grew through that, I realised that there was some real benefit to that. And that's what I think I, I have to offer as somebody who has various um, historical experiences and cultures and can kind of express that in different ways and bring it to people who perhaps haven't had that experience. Mm -hmm. um. So, so we actually were moving into um, the, the question of um, self-criticism and self-censorship and so on in, in, in Muslim, uh, Muslim environments. So we were talking about, it seems like there's a bit of a parallel history here. You know, there's been the Rushdie affair on the, on the one side, and there's the Dear Van Hoek and the Ali story mm -hmm. in the Netherlands. Um, and then right now, um, there is the Jewel of Medina, uh, which you did a, did a review. And if I could just read what, what you wrote about it. Um, uh, this is uh, Sherry Jones's book, The Jewel of Medina, was reviewed by Shalina. She writes, even if you feel that it is your duty to read it in defense of the freedom of speech, don't do it, I beg you. Go out and enjoy the last sunny days of autumn. Play with your children. Watch paint dry. You'll thank me for it. Right? <laughs> so I was sort of wondering you know, what your views were of, of our panel here on, on you know, self-critical attitudes and so now I'm going to go back to you first. Then, well, um, we well, let me just react. Let, let's just position. take, you know, let's just take freedom of uh, of expression as um, as the topic. Um, I was quite surprised to learn that um, this book it's it's banned in England, so you can't. So I don't think it was banned. I think okay. it was just um, the publishing houses chose not to publish it because of what had happened in the US. Yeah. Um, so the original publisher, I think it was Random House, decided yeah. not to go ahead with it. So, so in principle, that is um, called neo-censorship. And I did do a conference on mm -hmm. neo-censorship in, in Holland. What is neo-censorship? That censorship which is not put on uh, the individual or the group uh, by the state. So it's not a, um, you know, a censorship by the state saying you cannot publish this or you cannot write this. It's censorship which 
um, an organization such as a publishing house or an individual such as a writer puts on him or herself. And the question is whether that's a good thing. Now, the panel I did um, led to two answers or, or two avenues. One is when you restrict yourself in your writing to make your writing better qualitatively, um, that's not self-censorship or neo-censorship. That's just civilization. That's just looking for the detail and the nuance. But when you um, do not publish something because of fear, because of fear of attacks, or because you will uh, offend people, that is neo-censorship. And I struggle with that aspect of censorship because I feel that if we are afraid of saying and, and writing what we want, um, our minds will not grow. And at a certain point, I'm, our minds will stop exploring in all depth whatever we want to explore. And thinking and, and you know exploring your mind and writing that down, utilizing the freedom of expression, ultimately leads to that exploration, ultimately leads to truth. And I feel a bit, I, I, I worry a bit about that, and I think it's a very interesting topic. So I would say that about um, you know, the self-censorship at this stage, and I can maybe react on Somebody who has already been a victim uh, with you know, not being censored, and which is, of course, you know, Theo van Gogh. <laughs> uh, there, there was a lot of discussion after you know, his death he was stabbed on the streets of Amsterdam, whether, you know, Ayan Hussiali was not responsible for his death, you know. And um, I am, you know, uh, as a journalist, I am um, pro for anything you can say that you just have to let it outside and, you know, uh, uh, breed on it and make the best out of it, uh, c come out of it together. Because if you do not express what you feel and what you think about somebody, you will never get, get the opportunity to find out about somebody else's truth. And uh, I don't think a lot of people are capable of, you know, self-learning. And uh, for a lot of people, uh, and, and you know, also most of the people do not go to college or, you know, have a university degree. So they don't understand all these, uh, um, how do you say that, university books. So via dialogue, um, with you know, reading magazines and articles in the newspapers, they they find out about people's opinions. Which you know, what, that's why I blog. That's why I Twitter. That's why I, you know, try to um, participate on panels because it's another uh, level of reaching out to people. I think um, to go back to the point here, um, first I'd like to just make a context of that that comment that you, you read out from my article. I was actually um, discussing the book and, and I had to read all, I don't know how many hundreds of pages of it, and the conclusion I came to was that the reason that it was such a popular book and it fired everyone's imaginations was that there is really a dearth of writing that's accessible to people about these you know, big personalities from the birth of Islam, and, and whatever you think about the history of Islam, there's no doubt that characters like Aisha, um, if he was mentioned in this book, you know, are capturing people's imaginations. And actually, what I found really disappointing was that it was such a terribly written book. 
And, you know, I, I love historical fiction, and I confess uh, a slight liking for romantic fiction, but don't tell anyone outside this room. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just so painful to read this book. You know, I kind of lost 24 hours of my life reading it. Um, so that, that was the, the reason that I was so... Why do you say that? Not because if, you know, you've read it, sorry that I had disturbed, but, you know, lost 24 hours, now you know why you don't like it. You know, but now it's just you know really badly written. And my point yes. was that, actually, if people are going to write these books, my first thing is, please write them well. And actually, I made a criticism in my article, which is that Muslims should be writing this kind of work yes. to actually themselves explore what's gone on in history. And I think there is a real danger in, in, in a, um, within a Muslim mindset, which is you, you elevate people to such a place on a pedestal that it becomes really difficult to relate to them and kind of see how that applies to your day-to-day -day life. So that was one of the comments I made. But the other one was that um, the author, Sherry Jones, and this is coming back to your point about self-censorship, was or censorship, was that she had said that she had written this book as a defense of freedom of speech because she wanted to create um, bridges to the Muslim world. But her history was so different, and I, and I accept that there is a bit of um, you know, creative license when you're writing historical fiction, but it was so different from what Muslims understood from their history that there didn't appear to be any possibility of a dialogue, of a shared understanding of where the history was. And that's what I found disingenuous about her writing. So I'm all for people exploring histories in different ways, kind of analyzing facts in different ways and talking about them, but if they want that as a platform for dialogue, then there has to be some kind of shared point of departure to do that, and it has to be well-written and accessible. And I think there's kind of areas of improvement on, on all sides for those who are perhaps from a not a Muslim background to explore, but also those from a Muslim background to produce better writing and literature. Mm -hmm. That's the main message. Who do you want to? Who do you want to? Have? So Salman Rushdie, whether he's accessible? Who would you regard Salman Rushdie as accessible and well written? I, I certainly wouldn't dispute that his writing is well written. I mean, he's obviously a literary giant of our time. I mean, I think his his um, issue was that again he took um, a point um, around you know it, that's not really accepted in in kind of religious canon, he made that the centre of his particular book. Um, but I think actually, so that, that was the kind of point of contention, but actually I think if you ask most Muslims now who were around at that time, and I was kind of a young teenager, they would actually look back and say, you know what, that wasn't the right way to handle mm. the situation. I think a lot of people who were taken up we're really exploring for the first time what does it mean to live in a society where people say different things and have different ideas. And actually, I think that situation would have been very, very differently handled. And I think the proof of that is that actually the Jewel of Medina was just completely a damp squib when it came out. Muslims really didn't care. Even I didn't particularly want to review it, but I kind of felt that it was better to have a review than no review. Mm -hmm. Um, and will I think that that's the maturity over 20 years that you see happening. Uh, my last question, will you plainly take that message to parts of the East End of London? I, well, if you look at what happened in the East End of London and the Jewel of Medina, there was really no reaction I mean, at I all. Now, th there was no reaction to it. Even if you look at this kind of media story that was done about Monica Ali's Brick Lane, I think there were a few restaurant owners who got a bit upset that it was being filmed there, but nobody really bats an eyelid on that anymore. But what would happen if um, the book was launched 
in, in the United Kingdom. I mean, let's not... I, I think the quality of, of someone's work, um, I, I, I would feel, is secondary. And um, some people will find it fabulous, other people will find it um, really horrible, and maybe the majority will find it really horrible. But I think the freedom of speech says that even if one person thinks it's a good quality work, it should be available for those people who want to read it. So I'm just wondering if it didn't you know, bring out so much commotion uh, by the mentioning of it, what would happen, just out of curiosity, I, I'm wondering what would happen if it would be published? Have we learned from Rushdie's, the Rushdie affair? And I'm, I'm saying this because when the Rushdie affair came out, I was 19, and I remember watching the television, and there was a, a Muslim scholar or a Muslim representative who said, well, Rushdie um, really insulted uh, the prophet, and you know, in, in, in actual fact, he should get the death penalty. And I was 19 and very, very Muslim, and I was nodding, yes, of course, he should. And um, it took me 10 years to, uh, I had the book in my, in my book, uh, bookshelf, but I, I couldn't touch it because it was, it was something like an obscene thing. And I remember when I was 30, which was like two years ago. <laughs> You're still to reach that, aren't you? <laughs> and I, I read the book like this, the, the first few hours, because I, I thought, okay, I'm very interested in literature, I'm very interested in, um, in Indian, you know, writers from the Indian subcontinent, because I felt, you know, I'm, I'm from there, so people who are from there will, you know, I will recognize them. So I read it like that. And I was, you know, every day I was asking God forgiveness, please forgive me, but I had to do it, I had to read, I have to read it. And then I read it to three, to, to two thirds, because I've never actually finished a Rushdie. Um, a lot of people claim they have, and I, I find it so very surprising, because he's very complex. He has five different layers and uh, many more. But the point is that when I read it, and when I read what he did, he kind of romanticized uh, the life of Muhammad, maybe in somewhat insulting manner in some respects, but why isn't he allowed to romanticize? Why can he not use his imagination where religious people have also used maybe their imagination? That is a secular point of view, of course, because religious people may think it's a religious um, uh, thing from, from God directly, Islam. So again, going back to the question, what if the book on Medina will be published in, in England, what will happen? I think um, my view is actually, unless it's put out in the media, no one's really going to be that bothered. And I, when I observed the way the media played out with publishing the, jewel of, the story of the Jewel of Medina, nothing kind of really happened, but it became this big media story. And I think, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that nothing will happen. I, no, I agree. I, 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 I think that the Muslim community has matured, but I think the underlying <laughs> issue, which, in my analysis of what happened with um, uh, Salman Rushdie's book, was again most Muslims hadn't read the book. Mm -hmm. They'd kind of been told what was supposedly offensive about this book, and I think what was underneath it was this sense that Muslims were starting to feel then and didn't know how to react to, and still feel now, but are more mature in reacting to, is this is not about specifically religious theology, it's about what is my place in society and how am I respected for the fact that I have beliefs which are, you know, not 
not the same as the mainstream, may have some variation in them, come from a different kind of heritage. And I think that's really what Muslims were reacting to by, by responding to the satanic verses, by responding to the kind of media stirrings around things like cartoons or other books that are published. I think what Muslims are saying is that freedom of speech allows you to write this, but it upsets us so much, why would you want to? You know, why would you want to do that? Just because you can offend doesn't make it a responsibility to offend. And I think where we need to come to some kind of accommodation is that there are two very different views. On the one hand, it's, you know, there's a, a very robust defense of freedom of speech, which is important. But on the other hand, there is a very robust argument putting forward saying, you know, maybe we should just kind of be nice to each other yeah. and respect each other and, and realize that there's going to be differences of opinion. Mm -hmm. And those two views have not yet kind of been put forward side by side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, and my question is, <coughs> you say, um, you know, how will Muslims react to it? But, and I'm thinking, what do you mean with Muslims? You know, can you, you know, Muslims are like 1.57 billion people in the world and there's so many so many more categories uh, when you know I know the moment when Rushdie you know published uh, when when the book was published and he was you know a fatwa uh, etc and, and we watched it and it didn't do anything to me but I'm supposed to be a Muslim family too so I wouldn't go on the street and, and fight, you know, for, mm -hmm. so, so what is it? You know, how can we say, how will Muslims in the West react? Can you organize all these Muslims in the West to do something against this? I, I, I personally don't think you can organize them. No. You cannot. Well, you could be not a Muslim at all, but just care about historical scholarship. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know. Even I think if it yeah. were about Napoleon, yeah. you wanted to be right. right? I think yes. Yeah, so yeah. I think there is a concern which I um, which I really share of of uh, many Muslims, and that's not that they feel insulted or that they feel ashamed or something. I think a lot of Muslims are very you know well read and they are used to stuff. I think the uh, concern is that there is so little knowledge about Islam, and then this book comes along depicting um, you know, a character, a, a very loved character in the Muslim world, and they are afraid that people who hardly read about is Islam or know nothing about Islam except for what they see on television will buy this book and read about Muhammad and think that is Muhammad's life. And I think that's the concern which, um, uh, especially in, in Holland, and I, I, I'm sure it's a concern also in, in the UK, you know, how to deal with this. And I always say, against, you know, I always say against hate speech, you should have more speech. And against bad speech, you should have better speech. And I would agree with Shalina that there should be more, more writing. There should be more thinking, there should be more reading, there should be more publishing by not just Muslims, by, by a lot of more people. And I think we're living in very interesting times. There's a lot of curiosity towards, uh, towards Islam and, and Muslims so much that even in Holland you have some Suriname authors who, who are quite jealous in a funny way and saying, well, I wish I was a Muslim because then my books would sell. Um, so I think we should you know, encourage more writing 
and more gaining of knowledge. And my fear is that the freedom of speech is always, you know, put absolutely at all levels for television media and for written media. And I feel that we can go, we can meet each other in the middle by kind of putting some restrictions on television media, because television is is a very simple media, and you you can you always hear simple platitudes and and parts of the truth, and that would be quite insulting for many Muslims or disrupting for a society if harsh things were said on, on television, such as what happened in, in the Netherlands. Um, but books and, and written stuff, I would say just let it happen. I think maybe we should open up um, to the room just for this particular question, you know, the issue of self-criticism, <coughs> and there's many other things that I still want to bring up, but just on this issue. Yeah? Um, Wait, 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 in uh, saying that they must be open to criticism when we wouldn't necessarily permit um, literature that, that would be incredibly offensive with regards to things that we all agree that are offensive, like something promoting the Holocaust or something along, something promoting paedophilia. I mean, in terms of freedom of speech, they have the right to say that. And people would not be on the bandwagon of attacking people who would be against it. I think it's a bit inconsistent to just primarily focus on Muslims and saying you should be open to it when the reality is that pressure isn't applied to other communities because we accept those values. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you want to take it? To, well, I, I'm not sure I agree. I, I think um, in, in Christianity and in, in the history of Christianity and in the tradition of writing within the Christian world, there have been a lot of offensive books. Let me name a basic book, the New Testament. is quite offensive for Jews. And there's, you know, Jews are called children of the devil, and it's still there, and it's still um, considered a holy book of, of Christians, and should we ban it for, for, for Jews' sake? And there are many examples to be given about Christianity. I mean, Jesus Christ Superstar. It was, it was even worse for me to watch that film than to read Rushdie's book. In Holland, um, a few years ago, or, or one year ago, uh, um, a famous director published a book about Jesus Christ saying he didn't exist. You know, I'm, I'm going to write a book and historically analyze and, and justify and prove that he didn't exist. So I think there's a lot going on within the Christian world. I do think that Muslims have a different position because we are migrants in the West and I'm our, well. yeah, sorry? We're a minority as well. So we're a minority and we're really dealing... That's exactly my point. That's a good, we are in a different position. We, we, we have our migrant um, histories and our migrant um, identities. And in that way we feel different and we feel maybe sometimes a bit more um, offended. I don't know. Well, we, we have to get used to... I don't agree with that. But we're also Probably. But give me... I don't know. I don't, I don't know. If, I, I'm not, I I'm not sure I agree. No, no, but on, okay. Related to being Muslim. And what I'm saying is, when you then look 
condemn um, the, the murder of Theo very well. You have to say that it's not this. You can't. Yeah. It's not a parallel with this. I, I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I think what you're saying is there's a power dynamic, right? So it's a structural power dynamic. Yeah. So it's not appropriate in analogy. So the criticism is not in in a vacuum. There's no void to the criticism. There's no void um, in which this kind of uh, critique of Islam is happening. It's happening from a position of power, and. And so that's making it look like it's okay and it's dressed up behind freedom of speech. So I think I think you're right to highlight. We have to ask the question of: Is this about genuine, tr genuinely trying to build a relationship, understand, get you know, unpack what Islam is in today's modern world, or is it just dressed up and used as an excuse to to criticise people who, who are migrants or minorities? What can you keep it to yourselves? Sorry. Why can't you keep it to yourself? What do you, what do you mean by that? I mean, I mean, Christians mostly keep it to themselves. No. Well, when I have to sing Christian hymns every single day, I think that's a really interesting kind of question, though. What, what do you mean by keeping it to ourselves? Kind of staying at home and not well, being part of society? Have any examples of where you've had it shoved down your throat and numbers and names? Are there any other questions? Well, I have, I have, I have only one comment to make. Um, you know, your comment. <clears throat> I think um, as migrants as immigrants who have been living here like 50, 60 years in Western Europe, you know, in the UK and 40, 50 years in, in uh, the Netherlands, I think as migrants we should have an example role. How do you say that? Role models? Mm -hmm. Role? <laughs> because we have learned mm -hmm. to live together with other cultures. So I don't agree when you say Muslims are offended or immigrants are more offended. I think we have learned to migrate, to open up ourselves to op uh, for our cultures when, when we uprooted ourselves from our country to come and live here. So I think we have a leading role there for our peers, for our Muslim peers and our back, you know, in the country's back. Because if you would, you know, like my mother, my, I, I don't think my mother had ever lesbian girlfriends. But there was, a, there was a very famous lesbian state secretary in Dallas. And um, when she heard about you know, this state secretary who was lesbian, she was like, but she's a human being too. She's a person too, you know, without any prejudice. And I don't think her sisters who lived in Turkey would ever say that. So the, um, the tolerance of migrants should be so much more higher, I think. But I don't know. I uh, I have. Uh, that's my opinion. Let's, let's go to a question here in front. Yeah, come with the microphone. Do I need a microphone or? Yes. Thank you. I'm Martha. I'm a <clears throat> master's student at the. I'm sorry. This is like. I'm a master's student at the LSE. 
Um, I really like your whole olive oil culture thing because I'm a Greek American and I definitely understand how certain things transcend race or religion. There's a lot of similarities between all of us as human beings and you know, all of the Judaism, Christianity, and Islam were all Abrahamic faiths. And the word, or the, the Virgin Mary is mentioned more times in the Quran than in the Bible. I mean, can we find things that make us unite instead of make us different? And how can, how have or how can you all or us all as human beings try to make that happen? I won't take the floor first. I'm going to give it to Shalini on the spot. Um, well, I wrote Love in the Headscarf really as a personal project towards that goal. I was really fascinated by the subject of love, um, particularly from an Islamic perspective, why love wasn't talked about more. I'd grown up, uh, I went to a Christian school when I grew up, and I really enjoyed the fact that love was talked about all the time from a Christian theological perspective. Um, so I, I wrote the book really to explore the question of what does it mean to be a woman and to find love and you know how is this explored in diff different theological traditions but mainly because I figured that pretty much everybody irrespective of their religious or non-religious background irrespective of where they grew up was interested in love or romance if you have that kind of bent for literature um, you know it's the kind of thing if you get a group of women together inevitably somebody at some point will say so how did you meet your partner and there's a kind of shared global interest in that question, you know, over a cup of coffee. And I've, you know, since the book has been published and it's it's gone out in um, about eight different languages so far, I'll I'll get you know Orthodox Jewish women writing to me saying I felt a connection to what you said <coughs> and I have a different you know theological background, but I could see where you're coming from. A lot of Christian women, a lot of people who just you know are of no faith, saying I understand a little bit better and I shared that part of your journey. So that was my contribution to it, to write a kind of slightly offbeat, slightly humorous, not taking yourself very seriously type of book about saying, you know, I'm just a human being looking for the things that other human beings are looking for, but here is some heritage that, that I bring to that discussion. The same goes with my magazine, you know, we talked about career, we talked about studying, we talked about, you know, living on your own, just, you know, not to disguise all the problems you had as a community, but also to emphasize the, you know, the unity of people struggling with all these same issues. Let's let's uh, move to love and headscarf maybe uh, because that's the issue of, of arranged marriage. I want to I think. Yeah, the jump in there. Yeah. My apologies. No, no, sorry. I think it, 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 that that book um, really illustrates that. You can, um, if you, you know, bring. Now, let me let me give you give an example. Um, a few years ago, I did a correspondence in a Dutch newspaper, where a philosopher asked me the question, "What can we learn from Muslim women as regards to feminism?" Mm -hmm. And nobody had ever asked me that question. Um, we've all discussed feminism and emancipation. Of, of let's say the, the Western woman and her emancipation is seen as a model for the emancipation of all women around the world, all uh, women, what have you. And this question um, really made me think, what can the Western woman learn from the Muslim woman? So not just, so the Muslim woman does not only learn from her own religion and culture for her to emancipate her own self, but what can she teach the Western woman? And that has kind of, um, 
it made me curious as to uh, the good things in all cultures which could be beneficial for all of us. And where it concerns um, Muslims and Islam, I would encourage Muslims, and I do in my lectures, when you look at your Islamic uh, laws and your Islamic culture and the good things you find in it, share it. Don't make it something just for yourself because probably aspects of that culture, aspects of that religion, might be beneficial for, our, um, for the larger community. Take the issue of arranged marriages. I know many examples of arranged marriages which are quite good, which are very good actually. And one of the nice aspects of arranged marriage um, is the involvement of a larger group than just the two people who have fallen in love or who hope to fall in love. And this involvement, this engagement is lacking a lot with Western individuals who want to have a relationship or who want to marry. And sometimes you hear it, sometimes you hear 30-year-old women or 40-year-old women saying, well, I wish someone would assist me in, in marrying. And I think if you highlight the positive aspects and if you highlight the positive virtues or the values and try to share them, that way you can look for the parallels and look for the common goals and then you can progress as a society as a whole. And I think that's the way forward for, for everybody. But at the same time, you can also be very critical of, of you should, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think um, one should remain with eyes open and ears open and, um, uh, you know, arranged marriages as a, as a topic. Um, I, I, was a, I was a victim of a forced uh, engagement and, I mean, I'm not against arranged marriages, but there is a power uh, structure, there is um, an element of power and this can sometimes be abused, and it is sometimes abused. And the weaker parties in an arranged marriage are always uh, the women, sometimes the men, but it's definitely not the father, it's definitely not the mother, but the weakest are the girls and the women, or the boys and the young men. And we should really be critical of um, the, the scale which goes that way, that you know this power doesn't get abused for other interests than the interest of the individuals who want to get married. I, I'm sure you do agree that that distinction should be made. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to explore the topic of arranged marriage, um, aside from the lighter part, which I mentioned earlier, just simply the kind of dating diaries, a lot of fun in Western literature was to explore a little bit the difference between um, an arranged marriage or an introduced marriage um, and a forced marriage. Because the risk that I see kind of repeated in the media is that arranged equals forced. Mm -hmm. And that kind of conflation actually makes it more difficult to identify a forced marriage and more difficult to address those situations that need focus and where people do need support. Um, and when you know the difference, then I think it's easier to kind of target the areas where that kind of power is abused. So that was really a kind of one of the underlying goals I had to say that um, actually arranged where the two, the, the, young, the man and the woman have the primary choice and are the primary drivers with the support of the people around them actually have some real benefits. And, and as you were saying, that can actually 
gain from the experience of the people around them. And actually what I find really interesting is that we have today in the West the rise of kind of internet dating. Um, you know, you see all these adverts on TV for match affinity and e-harmony and kind of you're going to go to a music shop and fall in love with somebody there once you've met on the internet. And even more interesting, there are models like, um, I don't know if you've come across websites like My Single Friend, and the, the objective of websites like this is that you have a single friend and you post their details on this website and search through all these other profiles on behalf of your friend. Well, that's kind of what arranged marriage really is, except instead of it being your friend, it's your mom or your aunt or you know your older sister or so on. So I think there's a kind of realization that the, the notion that you have people around you supporting you to find somebody and it's done in a much more logical way, you could say, there's nothing kind of inherently problematic with that. Um, and I think that's kind of a really positive thing, um, as long as we remember that it's the two people at the heart of it. The, the challenge becomes when it's, you know, when there is this undue pressure, mm -hmm. when women feel kind of coerced into a particular situation. And again, I take heart from the kind of messages I get from my book where women write and say, well, you know, there is this cultural pressure. People talk about Islam being about free choice and about women's, you know, proper rights within marriage and about the fact that they must willingly agree. In fact, they go out and, and choose the person they want. And the fact that it doesn't always seem to happen like that. And that's really heartening for me that women can, are starting to recognize where their source of power is and the fact that it's right for them to say, you know what, this is marriage and this is about my choice and I have to live with this person. Um, but now asking the question, how do I have that dialogue with my family? How do I go about finding this person? Um, you know, how do I make sure that I have a, a successful relationship? So I think the questions are coming out, so we've got to be positive about that. But you both seem to be quite skeptical about arranged marriage with somebody from the, from the home country, right? I mean, do you, or do you see successful examples of that as well? I mean, I have some skepticism about it because I think it, what, what needs to be said very openly, I think, in immigrant cultures is if you've been living in a different place for a generation, you have a different culture from the one back home. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly for women, it can be difficult to have a husband who has perhaps very traditional expectations of a marriage to adjust to the fact they're in a new place. And that disenfranchisement of the man, the fact that they are perceive themselves to be in a place of disadvantage because they've come over mm -hmm. and they can feel you know, perhaps insecure. I think that has led to a lot of problems for women who have married from back home mm -hmm. in quotation marks. So that's the problem that I see with it. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything inherently problematic of marrying somebody from a different country yeah, or sure. a different culture. I think it's just that difference in idea about marriage that can be the problem. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of readers, um, you know, um, but that's that's something uh, that's on a different level, I think. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I'm against um, marriages from you know from their uh, country, the country of origin, the country of origin, simply because um, the people who come who come to the West have certain expectations of the West. So I've had a lot of letters and emails from women who were higher educated than their husbands mm -hmm. whom they married in the West, from the West. Mm -hmm. Turkish people, you know, and Moroccan, maybe, I don't know, Moroccan, but most of my readers uh, were Turkish. 
And so they were, you know, they had gone to college, but their husband from the West didn't go to college. So there was an education level, a, a huge gap between this education level, and all these women were promised something, that they would be, you know, going to a free country, and they would be, you know, having a luxurious life. But they don't have it. You know, they come, and then, you know, they even discover they have a worse life. How do you say that? Yeah. Yeah. They, don't, they don't have their friends. They don't mm -hmm. have yeah. as big a house as they had there back then. Mm -hmm. They don't have their own language. And I have, I have um, two readers who killed themselves because of that only. So because they were so depressed about the expectations mm -hmm. not coming out. Mm -hmm. And that's the only reason why I'm against, mm -hmm. you know, and wh why I would be pleading for um, education programs from the government to um, inform all these people who come to the West. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's. Well, the government does that to a certain extent, right? No, it's I mean, it shows the liberal values of the West and all that, and you know, it has language requirements for spouses that come. Yeah, but it's it's more like an enforcement. They have to you know re, uh, learn the language and they have to learn the culture, the mm -hmm. Dutch culture, but they get they get just one proportion of the media you know they they just see they they just hear and see the beautiful sides of holland but they've never been there they've never experienced being in holland being in you know in in dutch streets in with dutch people with their new families and um, most of the well, I don't know <coughs> other countries but when i go back to turkey and when i'm there with my friends they act so much more liberal than the the Turkish immigrants in in in, in Holland because you know they people tend to to you know internal how do you say that, <coughs> themselves when they're in in another country and they're so much more ahead and modern in Turkey than all the people in in Holland so there's a huge cultural gap and educational gap. Can I ask you to return to your question about what Islam um, or Muslim women can, can contribute or how it can interrogate Western feminism? I think that's really the, the, the interesting and challenging question. I mean, to move, we slightly digress towards um, arranged marriages, which is actually common <coughs> to you know, many South Asian cultures, mm -hmm. and yet all South Asian women aren't subject to the scrutiny that, Islam, that, that Muslim women are, and they're not seen and portrayed as you know, subjugated and, and oppressed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the, the interesting question for us. Um, do, do, do you mean what concretely? Other examples? Or, or, or yes. In, well, there are many examples. Or what did you have to talk about in your correspondence? In my yeah. correspondence, we talked uh, about marriage. We talked about every relationship, you know, between man and woman. And that could be in uh, marriage, that could be as mother, son, as daughter, father, um, as, as, you know, colleagues, um, teacher, student. In any contact you have, um, how do Muslim women, in this case it was about uh, Muslim women, um, uh, are they emancipated? How do they um, create 
this emancipation for themselves? What is their inspiration? Is it the Quran? And what can we, what can we, what can the Western woman, which, are, which is we of course, learn from her? Which, what can the Muslim woman teach her? And I think, for example, the respect for parents. Now, we, we, to come back to, to arranged marriage, um, as I see it, a, a, a Pakistani Muslim will, when she wants to get married, thinks of course of her own um, choice, of her own uh, pleasure, of her own uh, future and her own interest, but she has a different burden, I call it burden, but it's a wrong word, for lack of a better word, she has, a, she has an extra uh, concern, and that is the concern for her parents. Will her parents also be happy with the choice? So she has to think in collective terms. She respects more the collective interest, and the collective interest shouldn't clash with her individual interest. So does this make a Muslim woman uh, better? Can we learn as Western women from that? I think we can. I think individualism in the West sometimes has gone too far. Sometimes we, um, you know, we are so disrespectful, not just to our parents, to our teachers. I teach at, at, in, in, at the Rosefield Academy in, in, in Holland and at Leiden University. And I'm not a professor, I'm a guest lecturer, but my husband is, is a professor. And he gets emails and people call him, hello, Dre, and his name's Andreas, but they call him, hello, Dre. And I thought, I think, you know, where's the respect for your elder? And that's something which I really was taught when I was living in Pakistan. They said even kings who would enter um, the school would take their shoes off because of respect for the teacher, because the teacher was at that moment higher than anybody else. And, and in very many levels, now what's becoming very popular is economic, um, in economic terms, uh, what do Muslim women, what, can, what could they bring in, in, in ways of saving money, in ways of, you know, when a Muslim woman works, she doesn't have to contribute to the household. What does she do with that money? That money actually makes her quite powerful. She can be beneficiary to many causes and I think if we open our minds up, we could learn from economic differences in, in how economic matters are dealt with, respect for elderly, um, chastity. So how um, Muslim women carry their chastity with or without the veil is something which also is carried by some Western women. Western women can also be very chaste. So there could be something, some parallel you could teach. You know, um, one of the letters was about the headscarf. And I find the headscarf is quite interesting because what it does is that it um, delays a certain uh, rapidity in contact with men. So instead of just being available for a man, you know, unveiled, the veil kind of creates a distance. And I was, I talked in my letter, is that a good thing for Western women to put in some delay in your contact with men. Don't, don't go and sleep with them immediately. But let him win you. Let him, you know, get to know you. So it's things like that, which I think, uh, there's, there's a whole lot of examples. I think there's much more to learn than um, the examples of oppressed Muslim women or the um, not-so-emancipated Muslim women. I think um, I would make a, a, a kind of more fundamental response to your to this question of what can Muslim women offer, and I, and I think actually it's a really great question to maybe expand on in, in a separate seminar. 
I think the fundamental thing for me is that there is a different way to be a woman than the model that we have today. Doesn't necessarily make it better. I think there has to be some humility in that, and you don't kind of force your view as a Muslim woman that this, you must be a, Muslim, a woman like me, but there's a challenge which I don't think women in the West have really accepted, that there is a different way to be a woman. And actually Muslim women in various countries around the world are actually putting a stake in the ground saying, okay, we're learning from what you did, but we are going to make a different way. We have a different path of emancipation and liberation. And that for me is the first question that you have to kind of address before there can be any kind of learning, which is to accept that people do things in different ways. I mean, one of some of the images that have really captured my imagination in the last couple of weeks, I don't know if you've been watching their, their activities in Bahrain, you have all these women in this very kind of typical stereo stereotyped black long garb and they've been kind of going out on the protests as of the women in Tahrir Square, you know, in kind of multicolored scarves and they've been kind of side by side with the men. And I think having these kind of new images, these new stories, these new narratives, that's the kind of first stage of understanding that Muslim women have something to contribute, which is there's just another way to be a woman. And some of those ways might help some of the problems that Western women have today. There's also, <coughs> I think, um, a misunderstanding about um, Western women, you know, in my case, Dutch women are emancipated, mm -hmm. which is not. And I think a lot of people um, discovered that because they were examining other groups of women, how emancipated they were. So then you have to have another, you know, your, uh, the group of your own people to be examined too. And then they discover that, you know, in my case, only 46% of Dutch women are independent. 46% for such a liberal country and for such a, mm -hmm. you know, wealthy country. That's not a lot. You would expect that, you know, most of the Dutch women are emancipated. And we discover these things because we are examining groups like us. Um, if you look to the survey um, um, just recently, they have put their um, aims on Moroccan women because Moroccan women in Holland seem to be the most ambitious in Holland. They go to the university, they go to, you know, to the college and then they decide to study further and if you go to, if you um, um, look at journalism, if you go to media, if you, um, their entrepreneurship, they focus themselves, you know, to be successful and nobody's stopping them. And what, there's one thing, um, you know, I, I really think we can learn so much more from Muslim women as we can, you know, generalize them or, you know, Turkish, Pakistani. Once they are liberated, they don't let that go anymore. So <clears throat> when, you know, it has been a little bit harder for them to go to college, um, to um, have a job. So they will not let that go because they're married or they have a child. Because it's their liberation. So in, in Holland, independence means when you make your own money, which is like 865 euros a month. 
So if you have that, you can take care of yourself. But most of the Dutch women are underneath that. Or they are married and they think, you know, it's okay, but once they are divorced. And my readers, <coughs> it's very, um, uh, it's very extraordinary to, to say that um, they have other role models. Like in Turkey, 55% of scholars are female. You can't say that about Dutch women. And I'm not saying which is good or bad, but they say, hey, I can be a better scholar in Turkey because you know it's, it's much more accepted to do that. And we don't have role models in, in Holland anymore. 2% of the boards are uh, seated by female uh, executives. That's, I think, for a whole emancipation process, which takes place almost a century or more than a century, it's, it's going you know, slowly, I think. Let's go to the question in the back there. Thank you. Oh, I don't really like the mic. Um, anyways, and I, um, yeah, I was just wondering because I recently watched the BBC um, show and he had like um, this documentary about Gerd Wilders and that he was probably the most dangerous man on earth now with his um, Islamophobia. And um, yeah, the question I have because um, it seems to be such a big thing in Holland. He got so many more votes than everyone actually expected, and. Um, I'm just wondering where this Islamophobia in Holland, where do you think it comes from and how do you think that um, these two groups can be yeah, reconciled? Well, Islamophobia, it, the word already, you know, it means that you fear Islam and where it comes from, it's, it's a very difficult uh, question. I don't think I will be able to, to answer it, but the, the root of all fear is um, lack of knowledge, ignorance. And I think um, uh, Muslims are firstly portrayed as the other. So the model, the word which was used before, the model is the Western uh, secular um, uh, person. And the Muslim is then the other and perceived as not yet become Western and secular. That's, that's the first departure point, I think. And secondly, there is very little knowledge about this other. And um, why is Wilders, and, and this knowledge is, of course, we, we, there is a lot um, starting to be written about uh, Muslims and Islam, about Muslims living in the West, about the meeting of East um, and West, mostly here because when I'm in England, I always go to the bookshop to buy more books. And I think there's a lot of scholarly, you know, scientific research done. Um, here at Wilders, um, has come in, in Holland in a time where um, uh, you know, there's an economic crisis and Holland is a small country and he uses very popular jargon, you know, Holland, um, there shouldn't be too much Islam in Holland. And when people hear the word too much Islam, they already are fearful and they get more fearful. So it's just lack of knowledge of the good aspects of Muslims and I think it's the tendency in Holland at this moment to look at the bad sides of the multicultural society, to look at the, um, uh, the disadvantages. Uh, Wilders, uh, some weeks ago, or some months ago, um, uh, demanded um, a budget be made to demonstrate how much 
migrants have actually cost costed the state. And those are, of course, figures which should be open, but the debate becomes very ugly because then he says, well, they cost so much and this is all taxpayers' money and what is their contribution? Nothing but, um, you know, grocery stores. And I think um, the only way to get past that against hate speech, again, more speech and better speech. And I think in general, the mainstream politicians in Holland um, haven't successfully um, politicized the issue of migration. And I think they should do that because there's a vacuum which then Wilders falls into. And in the beginning, I didn't think he was so dangerous. I found him a comedian, this, this actor type of person, you know, from Shakespeare, <coughs> a bad actor from Shakespeare. Um, but I'm, I'm becoming more and more worried, more and more worried. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think um, um, it's not only Holland. It's in a whole, you know, in, in, in the West, in, in the whole uh, Western Europe. Um, and second, when, you know, a new um, um, influx, uh, when a new uh, identity is coming in your own, in, in, in your culture, you always have... Um, you, you always get you know, triggered to think about your own identity. And I think that's one of the things what's happening now. If you, um, if you read blogs, if you read comments on the blogs, most of, uh, and I see that also in Western Europe, Christianity is losing numbers. How do you say that? It's losing numbers. numbers. A lot of people don't go to church. And on the other hand, there is this new religion coming in your country where you don't have your religious identity anymore. So it's, it's on both sides. So you fear that new religion, but you also think about your own identity, about your religious identity. And if you, can, if you cannot really give answer to that, it makes you scared. And for mavericks like Geert Wilders, but also, you know, Angela Merkel just recently, you know, in October, I think, she said the multi-culti concept has failed. It's also a popular jargon. British Prime Minister Cameron just, you know, a week ago, he said that. So it's also a popular thing to say to gain votes. And, and I, I think, you know, not only sex sells, Islam sells too. If you have, you know, your time or economist, yes, if you put their Islamophobia or what did the Muslims do, what, you know, it sells. People are afraid and they want to know more. I think. <laughs> now all of a sudden we have a lot of questions, but I'm running out. That hand I saw first. Yeah, you're on. When I saw the title of this talk, I thought, I saw Islamophobia. And I thought, okay, how was this going to be handled? Because I know that from keeping an eye out for religious matters and issues around humanism and about secularism and integration and things like that, I see in the popular press Islamophobia quite a lot. And what, what I quite find worrying is that when people level rational criticism against tenets of Islam or the actions of Muslims or what Muslims believe, they're labeled as blanket 
Islamophobic. Mm -hmm. In other words, all criticism is stifled under this particular word. And for authors, I know how important it is that words are your medium and that the importance of definitions of word is very important. If there are some legitimate criticisms of Islam, for example, um, and I'll take, for example, um, that women coming from Islamic communities, if they come out, or if they, the, for women who love are the women, is a kind of a, a, a non-existent voice, as far as I can tell. For example, but if you, sorry, I've got lost here. I'm worried about the word using when it's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. I want to hear good arguments. Mm -hmm. And if there's bad ideas out there, I want to hear them. Yeah. Let's talk about them. I, I agree with you, and that's my, one of my main worries. Um, where it concerns, um, you know, the, the progress of, of the Muslim mind. I think, uh, I, I experience it myself, I mean, I, um, I'm a Muslim myself, my, my parents are Muslim, my brothers and sisters are Muslim, and I have all the choice in the world to not be a Muslim, so, but I, I choose this faith, but I still feel that there are things which I want to criticize or call for. I think there should be a lot more reading of, let's say, even the Quran, and a lot more listening, a lot more participation in, um, uh, in you know, debates and, and thoughts of, of, of Islam. And sometimes I can criticize, and then especially from the Muslim side, through emails on my Facebook, I will sometimes be disowned by Muslim women who are my friends and say, well, you cannot be my friend anymore because what you've said is so insulting and so damaging for the Muslim community, and you are spreading hatred. And those are very harsh and um, I, I, very harsh words, which I um, I try to stay in dialogue with these people, and I say, look, you should be very critical and sharp in a, in a positive manner to get down to the truth, and don't call, you know, Islamophobia because otherwise everyone will be scared to, to write something. I'll give a personal example. I wrote um, this book. Um, it's, it's in Dutch. It's Little Green Riding Hood and the Converted Wolf. And they are seven fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen and Van Grimm. And they are, um, the question was, let's say R Little Red Riding Hood was a Muslim woman. What would the story be like? And Sleeping Beauty, let's say she was a Muslim woman what would the story be like? Now, to give you the end of Sleeping Beauty, you remember she gets kissed by a prince and then she wakes up. But in, uh, uh, being a Muslim, she wasn't married, so nobody could kiss her. So ultimately, she died. Um, but that's not the core of the, of the book. I, I felt kind of tempted to use the word Muhammad for all the characters, the, the princes. And um, uh, I, ha I had some of my friends read it and they said, well, you know, if you do that, um, given the times we are living in, people will think it's a provocation and you should take it out. So I crossed it all out. So all Muhammads have become princes or caravan uh, tradesmen, um, and they're all born in a place called, which resembles Mecca, but it's, it, I didn't use that name. And um, uh, now I'm lost for <laughs> what I wanted to say. Um, sometimes I, 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 you know, I feel sad that I took it out because 
uh, I was worried that a lot of Muslims would say, you know, you, you've offended us and you've, you know, you're um, uh, making ridicule of, of Muslims <coughs> and you're, uh, you shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. So I think um, Muslims should get used to um, allowing people to express themselves in a better way, express also uh, criticism, and learn that when you do that, you grow, your own mind uh, grows, your own uh, ability to explore again the same mind uh, grows. And we're not allowing that to grow enough. So, Julia, I often see this, um, you saying things like, oh, how when you go back to the Muslim faith, that can be very critical of the Muslim culture. I mean, that's sort of a theme that comes out in your book. But maybe you want to say something else. Yeah, I'm going to be really naughty and just ignore your question. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just as a, an aside, actually, I, this is the first time I've met Naiman, and I was really fascinated that you've written these, uh, about these fairy tales, because I've written several pieces, again, looking at fairy tales. And when I talk about love in a headscarf, I specifically talk about fairy tales like Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. And um, this goes back to an earlier point about what do Muslim women have to offer. And I say, isn't it strange that we live in a culture which is supposedly about liberated women, and yet the model that we have for women is that the woman has to just kind of wait for her prince to come and rescue her. You know, this sleeping beauty image is you're, you can only be saved by love, but you can't do anything to get the love. And the only kind of love you can have is this kind of overly testosterone-fueled man who has to kind of chop down this forest to get to you. You know, isn't it better to be a more active woman who kind of goes out there and searches for herself? I think Cinderella's even worse because the prince in that is so fickle that he can only see the woman when she's all kind of dressed up and beautiful. Um, but sorry, that was and just... Barefoot. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't know my question. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I was really pleased to actually hear your description of the book because I just think that's so interesting, the way that we kind of take so much of um, our social direction from these fairy tales. Um, but just one comment about your, your question around, you know, kind of interacting with Muslims, interacting with Islam, and making criticisms of it. I think... The fundamental point for me, if you're, if as a culture and a society we're going to do that, is that it should be based from a position of knowledge. And I think if you want to criticize Muslims and Islam, go right ahead, but do it from a point of, you know, well-researched, well-understood. And the examples I would give you kind of either side is that um, if you've been following the EDL debate, if you saw the, um, I think it was Newsnight with him, there's this kind of overwhelming sense that suddenly the UK has become a Sharia state and there's Sharia courts left, right and centre. Well, actually, there's not. And, you know, you only go to a Sharia court if, if, you know, the two people agree and it's not even binding. And, you know, there's this kind of UK legislation that allows for civil um, dis disputes to be resolved in that way. So there's this kind of overwhelming misinformation about it which doesn't lend itself to making proper criticisms of the pros and the cons of you know, these kind of court, courts in quotation marks that are held. On the other hand, if you look at um, the rise of things like Muslim satire, or even a film that you may have come across, which I think came out last year, called Four Lions, which was around um, terrorism, which is not obviously a, a natural subject for a comedy, but the kind of up-and-coming Muslim comedians, films like Four Lions, are so well-researched, have such a depth of knowledge that the criticism is really well founded and the level of detail in the dialogue is, is really you know spot on and I went to um, a, a press preview of Four Lions 
Um, and for those of you who haven't seen it, it's about four men from, from the north of England who decide that they're going to um, you know, change the world by conducting one of these terrible atrocities. And I think there are about 30 or 35 journalists in the room, and I was there. I think I was the only Muslim in the room. And I was the only one laughing at all the jokes. Everyone else was like, I don't know if we should laugh at this, don't know if this is funny, or can we laugh at terrorism? And I think, <laughs> and, you know, I was kind of laughing out loud and staring at me, why is the woman in the headscarf laughing at me? <laughs> um, so I think the point is, if you research your material and you come at it from this position of knowledge, then, you know, go ahead. And I don't think Muslims yep. really have any issue with that because Muslims themselves understand that things have got a bit mixed up and we need to separate what is the kind of theology, how does this apply to the world we live in, how does this apply to my life, and, you know, maybe some things along the way have got a little bit, you know, mixed up and we need to get back and untangle that. But can I just ask, is it not just, I think it's not just knowledge, but also image. And um, uh, my experience, but it's just my individual experience, and in Holland they, they always call me the elitist and someone who rubs shoulders with, with the white, white people. And it's a common uh, criticism which I read in, in, in international press of uh, criticasters. Um, I weigh every word I write, and more so as I am becoming less young, um, and I think that is uh, the way to go, um, uh, so to, to gain more knowledge. But I think, you know, to put it bluntly, if I would wear a headscarf, sometimes I think it would be easier for Muslims <coughs> to listen to me. Um, I'm not sure whether that's true, but sometimes I, I think that image and... Um, the soft speech and uh, you know proving that you have uh, you've worked in communities and you connect with with uh, with people instead of just working on an intellectual level also helps. So it's image and you know. And more I, think, than that. I think the flip side is sorry just to add on yeah. is that um, people who are often not from a Muslim background will not listen to what I have yeah. to say. So yeah. we kind of. I can imagine that. I can imagine that. Yeah. I think I can take a last question here because we're already running out of time. Yeah. Um, I, I have a, I, I have a question for you all. It's that in every society, we don't accept the other, and then the other doesn't also accept us. So how can we get to the point where, like, each one of us is appreciated and liked? for what they are, rather than saying that it is because mm -hmm. in each one of us there is a beauty, there is an originality, that there might be a way, but all of us say, you are wrong, we are right. Mm -hmm. The others say, oh no, 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 you are right, you are not right, we are right, we are better. But how can we see the beauty and the goodness in each one of us the way they are? Should I? Well, <clears throat> first of all, I. I also want to put the question, you know, about your question, well, just a remark. I don't think you can really criticize faith. You know, the word on itself is already, you know, so it's faith. How can you criticize somebody's belief? I do believe that you can criticize culture. Um, when Ayan Hirsi Ali, um, you know, gained fame in Holland, she was talking about uh, female genital uh, mutilation. mutilation. It didn't say anything to me. We don't we don't experience that at all. So I had to look up in the books and see what was what, what was it. 
that she was talking about, but it was all about Muslims doing that. Sometimes I think, uh, you know, like Moroccan Jews? I don't understand them at all. But everybody's like, Moroccans are Islamic. And I think a Turkish Muslim doesn't understand anything about a Somali Muslim. So I don't think you can criticize faith, but I do think you can criticize culture. What is happening in the culture? Like in Turkey, they have, um, they have campaigns of you know, letting all these women, uh, girls go to school because a lot of women, uh, uh, girls in the school didn't go to school. And now all these parents see the, you know, the, uh, see the uh, advantages of their daughters going to school because they can, you know, they can be labor, they, they can work later and help the family. So it's culture. It's cultural. It's, it doesn't say that, you know, girls can't go to school, but they think it is. Secondly, I think when you personify pers person personification. Uh, problems, most of the problems can be solved. Uh, when people talk about Islam or Muslims, they're like, oh, you know, we don't know them. But I know for sure my neighbors. But it's the other way around as well. Yeah, it's both yes, ways. Yes. But my neighbors, I don't think they, they see me as a Muslim woman. They see me as a single mother who's making career. And when they think, oh, Geert Wilde is talking again, they're like, Oh yeah, we can sh we can ask Chennai about that because I'm not the other. I am Chennai, and they will think but twice. But you don't dress up like the other either. What did you say? You don't dress up like the other either, so that it's like you you feel Western, whereas like Naima, when you look at her, she looks a bit sorry, not Naima. I do apologize. Shalina uh, looks. Uh, very Muslim. So what I'm saying is that <laughs> it appreciate people the way they are. That is, it's. But um, well, I do. Th well, I do think that you know. I don't know whether your neighbors are white, uh, white people. But if you would ask her neighbor, because it's her neighbor, you know, do you want all Muslims out of this country? They will say yes, except for Shalina. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really dare to, you know, put my hand in the, in the fire for that because they love Shalina. But all the other Muslims, they have to go out of this country. I think so. And which is, which is also, you know, same from, for, for me, from my culture. Like, like I said, you know, my mother, go, you know, watching TV and saying like, because she loved this politician, you know, she was very left minded and uh, she, she did great things and then she heard she was lesbian and she was like, yeah, but she's a person too. She's a human being. You understand? If you personifies, personificate, how do you say that? Personalize. 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 Yes. But that, that brings also an acceptability of the grouping question. But anyway, to the, to the point of individuality, maybe some final remarks? Uh, I would just individuality? Well, yeah. maybe I'll just respond in a different way. Um, uh, Holland has 16 million people, and they always say we have 16, we have 15 million people, and then one million Muslims. And I, uh, kind of in a debate, said, well, why can't we just focus on talents? So I think Holland has 16 million talents, and I think if you focus on the contribution people make to their society, 
and I living in Holland, my society, my country is Holland, I want to contribute to Holland, I want to build, I want to build Holland together with these other 16 million, then you will um, appreciate each other because you appreciate each other's contribution and each other's uh, good work. And with talents, um, you can add values, virtues, how someone you know, is a good person, is someone sensible, is someone modest. You focus on those things, the character, and then the identity is automatically respected. In Holland, we had a Moroccan <coughs> football player who two years ago, and a woman talking of football is a real emancipated woman, um, he, he made a few goals during the, I think it was the European Cup, and nobody talked about him being a Muslim or a Moroccan. They talked about our Dutch citizen, our, our greatest, no, no, they said our greatest footballer, the footballer of this time, of this European Cup. And they, they focused on his contribution and his talent and I think that would be a way to appreciate everybody and want to learn from everybody. I actually just take that kind of question as a very personal and individual point because I think the only way to achieve lasting change of that magnitude, because that's a very universal human question, is to start from yourself. and. There is a, an Islamic saying which really inspires me and I, and I think about and it's written by um, Ali who was the, one of the caliphs after the Prophet Muhammad and he was writing to a governor about how to look after his people who are from various backgrounds and he says, remember when you deal with other people, either they are your brother or sister in your religion or they are your fellow creature in humanity and that's what I take in, in how I relate to other people. I think that's a, a wonderful way to, to end a very interesting evening. So let us thank our panel. <laughs>